Andrew asked me to, to come uh, and preach, and uh, it's been, um, this particular passage has been on my heart, um, partially because I taught it last week, so there's that, um, but that's not the main reason why I'm preaching it now, um, because it's something that has really touched on, um, in particular, what my wife and I have been dealing um, with, which is dealing with our, our fears, and if there was ever a passage that dealt with it, it's this one. Let me just read it, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 to 43, and I'll just pray once more. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumin, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you and ask that your truth and your love would cast out all the fear in our hearts that we would not be overwhelmed or overcome by the worries and anxieties that so easily beset us. But Holy Spirit, would you come now, be our teacher, direct us to Jesus, and may we, by your grace, be able to look at all that lies ahead of us through the truth of Jesus Christ. And as a result, may we grow strong. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, if you're um, my age or older, you may remember um, a tennis star who was more known for his mullet and his incredibly and uncomfortably short shorts than for his wisdom. But Andre Agassi did say something amazing. He said, fears are like gateway drugs. You start by giving into one fear, and the next thing you know, you start then giving into much larger fears. And I think that is true on so many levels. Obviously, I think we could say that's true on a cultural level. Um, We are now, as one writer in The Guardian recently said, living in the age of fear, with the access to um, all the information, uh, some of which is real, some of which may be fake. Um, That's the debate right now. All the news coming out, all the information, um, something's happening, you know, today in the world. Like, there hasn't been a day where I haven't just gone on, you know, the news website and not freaked out. Like, we're we're living in this, this kind of culture of fear. But in many ways, that's true for us on a personal level. I mean, how many times have I laid awake at night worrying? Just worrying, just fear coming in, creeping in. Well, what's going to happen here and this decision I made? And what's going to happen about that? And oh no, these people did that. And where's the money going to come from? And how are we going to find security for this? And, you know, what about the next job? And what about this particular relationship? And, you know, what about this physical pain and suffering that me or my family is enduring? I mean, there's so many reasons why fear can come into our lives and just overwhelm us. And typically, a response to fear is either fight or flight. You know, some of us, we respond. We say we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and, you know, we're going to face this head on. Like, some of you are a little more, you know, courageous. You face it with teeth. Uh, The rest of us, it's flight. Like, Like, run away from it. Ignore the world. Like, nothing is happening. Stick our heads in the sand and hope everything turns out for the best. Those are the two common ways that we approach fear. It's either fight or flight. But here in Mark's gospel, indeed in the whole Bible, we learn that there is a third way, and that is the way of faith. Now, faith is generally thought of in Western culture in one of of two ways. On the one hand, faith has come to be a reference for religion. What faith are you? What faiths are around in, in the world? What faith were you brought up in? But then there's perhaps a more common way. Faith has now come to mean a personal belief preference of yours. Well, my faith is, you know, I believe in this particular system of belief. Or, well, my faith and the, the response in our culture is, that's good for you. It's great that you have your faith. That is your personal preference when it comes to belief. Yet it is worth pointing out that when the Bible talks about faith, it never talks about those two options. It never does. When the the Bible talks about faith, it never asks us to believe in something that is not true. The Bible never asks us to, to just wish something and hope that it becomes real. In fact, it goes so far as to say, if all that has happened in the Bible is not true, then Christianity is a sham and church is pointless. There's no reason to go to church. Church won't make you better if this is not true. It'll just make you weird. Believe me, I know. And that is why Mark, some of you are like, you're weird. You've been in church for too long. No, that's just me. And that is why Mark and all the other writers are constantly putting forward the history, the validity, the truthfulness of the historical facts around Jesus. So a call to faith is a call to believe what is true. But then there's another element to faith, and that is commitment. 
I believe that this is true, and I'm now going to live in light of it. And this is what these stories are about. And it is in understanding what is true about faith that we then experience healing for our fears. It's in understanding and trusting in what is true about Jesus that we find the remedy for the fear that that terrorizes us. So what is it that is true about God that could bring such hope and healing right now into your life that would actually overcome your fears? Well, that's precisely what Jesus shows us. For in Jesus, God is revealed. The miracles of Jesus in healing and in bringing life to dead in this passage, they show us that he is the son of God. And what he does is a coming attraction of what things will one day be like when God returns to make all things new. And we see it in these two stories. And these two stories, it's a long passage, but these stories are meant to be held together. They act like a pair of headphones. If you want to hear the music, you've got to have both the left and the right earphone in. Um, or according to the academics, they call it a Markin sandwich. I like that. I love it when academics use this phrase like that. Two stories that share one theme, two stories that are interwoven together. And did you notice there are striking similarities? Both are stories of women. Both are stories of them getting healed. In both, they are addressed as daughter. In both stories, you have the scoffers, In both stories, they are ritually unclean. And in both, there is a similarity of years. The woman has suffered for as many years as this little girl has been alive. 12 years. But there's also differences. And I think it's actually in the differences that one of the biggest lessons is learned. And like a sandwich, it's defined by what is in the middle. That also was free. So what is true? (laughs) What is it that is true about God that brings healing to our fears? Let me just look at this under four headings before we just enter into a time of communion. First of all, you need to know this. Jesus enters into our desperation. Jesus enters into our desperation. This story shows people living in the shadow of death and in that tells the story of the world because death is the greatest and the last enemy. And so in dealing with death, he is dealing with humanity's greatest fears. In fact, uh, as, as a church, we're actually going through Mark and these episodes are not chosen at random. They show how Jesus conquers every one of humanity's greatest fears. And so in dealing with that, he's dealing with this deep issue. But what is surprising about this account is the level of detail and intention. It begins with with Jairus, who was a prominent man, had great wealth. He was the president of the local synagogue. And yet none of this, none of his status in life, none of his money, none of his means, his large household could have prepared him for what he is about to face. And regardless of his standing in the community, we see him. He runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees. Why? Because Jairus is dealing with what I could probably say is one of our worst fears. He's on the verge of losing his child. And in verse 22, he pleads at Jesus' feet. Those are some of the worst words that I can think of. And it's actually one of the worst experiences that my best friend in this world went through in the last few years. His daughter was born within 24 hours of my oldest daughter. And when she was eight eight years old, she got cancer and went through three 
years of work on this tumor, taking it out, it would return, and eventually she died. And going through that with my best friend, someone who's so close to me, and seeing the, the, the moments of pain, the moments of wrestling, I mean, there are few things in life that will bring you to your knees like this situation. Some of you have perhaps gone through it or know someone who has. And it's in those moments, if we can be honest, it's in those moments where all of our belief system, the, the stuff that we say, the slogans we post on Instagram or whatever, like the rubber meets the road when you face suffering. It's there that you really know what you believe. And what I want you to notice about Jesus here is so important. He enters into our desperation. He listens to Jairus. And one of the most important parts of that paragraph, it says he went with him. He went with him. See, I think this is huge because Jesus is not merely a public figure. He's a personal savior. We all know those people who are just public figures. You know, they're there, they're on the stage, they got the microphone, but maybe you want to have a personal conversation and like, uh, email my fifth assistant, you know, or, or whatever. Like, I, I don't, you know, I don't talk to normal human beings. Like, I'm up here, you're down there, subscribe to my podcast, done. Like, everything that you need to know can come through a subscription in iTunes. Like, so there's so many, many of us have had that experience, and yet Jesus is not like that. Jesus is interruptible. Isn't that fantastic? Here, here he is at, at the, this peak of his popular ministry and yet he stops and he listens and he goes with him. This is beautiful for my own heart. I also think this is very practical for uh, us as a church community because I think this is a beautiful picture of how we are to come alongside other people when they are suffering. See, many of us, we want to give quick answers when people are facing incredible pain, but yet one of the greatest things you can do is just sit down and be with someone. Remember the story of Job, some of the greatest human suffering ever recorded? Remember his friends, his stupid friends, if you remember that? The best thing his friends ever did was sit down, shut up, and cry. There will come a time to talk, but there's something beautiful about presence. Jesus is aware of and concerned with every single detail about your life. He is with us. You're not a problem to be solved. You are a person to be known and cared for. And this is especially true when we come to the woman in verse 25 through 29. Unlike Jairus, she is not named, but she does have a story. And in verse 25, there we see hear her in another situation of desperation. She suffers physically, but she also suffers in other ways. She suffers socially and also practically. She has this, this, this hemorrhaging issue that has been going on for many, many years, and as a result, she was deemed as ritually unclean, and therefore she's put outside of the community back in that ancient culture, and to add on top of all of that, she has lost all of her money that she spent for years and years on doctors who did not make her better. They actually made her worse. Now, what was in her mind in this moment? Perhaps there was a bit of superstition, we're told there that she, she heard about Jesus and she, we don't know how much she knew about Jesus, but in her mind, if she could just touch the hem of his garment, like everything would be fine. And in the minds of many, that's how power works. It's this kind of impersonal force. And if I can just somehow tap into it, you know, or control it, then everything is going to be all right. 
So there's probably a little bit of superstition in there for her. But she also knew something about Jesus, this, this, this miracle worker. And so she had enough information where she was willing to take that huge risk and enter back into the community and dare to touch the rabbi. And I have to say on that note, there's something that is both a huge encouragement and also a massive rebuke for me and perhaps for you. Because we would look at this woman and say, well, I know so much more about Jesus than this woman. And yet, sadly, we often respond in a way that is far, far less. This woman only knew a little bit about Jesus, and yet she's running to him, willing to risk it all. And yet, what about those of us who know so much more, and yet we're not really willing to take our cares and concerns to God? Oh, I've, I've read, you know, systematic theologies. I've been reading the Bible for years, but, you know, I'm not really going to take that problem to God. I'm fine. It'll sort itself out. Like, we'll deal with it. The woman who knows so much less often shows so much more of, of a response. And I just wonder if at times I'm so passive because I'm not that desperate. I think one of the biggest hindrances to prayer, genuine prayer, like crying out to God prayer, it's not busyness, it's self-sufficiency. It's not busyness. Like when you're desperate, like Jairus, you will take time. You, you run you know, property, you run businesses, great. When you're desperate, you will make time. But the sad reality for me is I'm not always that desperate. I think that I can handle this. I think I've got this. I can take care of it. Thank you very much, Lord Jesus. But it's in those times of pain where I realize I don't have it all together and suffering makes you realize not that you've lost control, but that you were never in control in the first place. Here's this woman, she's an example for us. And in verse 30, Jesus notices there in the story, power has gone out of him. And the story could end there, but it doesn't. In fact, I don't even think it's the main point. Jesus stops, turns, and says, who touched me? And in verse 31, you have the disciples, of course, who think this is ridiculous. Like, who talks to Jesus like that? Like, everyone's around you, Jesus. Like, what do you mean, who touched you? Can't you clearly see? Oh, they are so often like us. But verse 32, we're told he looks around to see. He might have been content that the woman had experienced this power, but that would have stopped short of full restoration. See, the first thing we must know is that Jesus enters into our desperation. But secondly, what is Jesus doing? He draws us into relationship. He draws us into a relationship with himself. Not content to just say, oh, power went out, somebody got healed, great. I'm moving on to, to my next uh, meeting in my busy agenda. He looked around to see who had touched him. Now, we must not assume that Jesus doesn't actually know, as we will see in a moment, He's drawing her out. We see God do this all throughout uh, the Bible. We see it in the book of Genesis when our first parents rebelled against God and then they're hiding from God and God asked the question, Adam, where are you? Now clearly God knows where Adam is. He's not like, oh, the tree, you're buying the tree. Sorry, I created the world that, you know, all these trees are kind of getting away and I just, I, I, you know, couldn't see clearly. There you are, Adam. Of course not. What is he doing? He's drawing Adam out. Adam, where are you? I want you to answer. Rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Who touched me? What's he doing? He's, she's drawing this woman out. The woman may have hid herself 
out of fear and out of shame. In fact, we're told there, fear and trembling. She's aware of the power of this preacher. Maybe she expects a scolding of some sort. Have you ever been called to like, you know, the, into the boss's office? It only happens when you've done something really good or really bad. And for me in school, it was almost always something, what were you gonna think? <laughs> really, really bad. If you thought really bad, you would be right. <laughs> no doubt, she's just, what is he gonna say? Like, how dare you, you know, grab the hem of my garment and run away like that? I mean, I don't know what's going on in her mind, no doubt. She's carrying all these scars with her. She's been an outsider, an outcast. She's suffered this, this chronic issue for many, many years. She wanted a miracle but Jesus wanted a relationship. In verse 33, she falls at his feet, and I notice this phrase, she tells him the whole truth. With openness and honesty, she says everything. Jesus insists on personal connection and clarity. Here's why. She herself needed this because she had somewhat of a superstitious thinking about Jesus' power. But he clarifies, he says, yours was an act of faith. Jesus is not content to allow his power to be thought of as some kind of magic trick or impersonal force or some kind of superstition. God always makes it clear that it is a result of a relationship with him. He says hers was an act of faith. Because God never intended for us to have a consumer transaction, but a personal relationship. God is not like the genie in the bottle and we rub the lamp rightly and he comes out and, you know, what do you want? And we, we tell him and he, he runs our errands for us. So what is Jesus doing? He's turning a powerful encounter into a personal encounter. That is what he wants. And even in the midst of our pain, he'll draw us out. Why? He'll draw attention to himself. Why? Because he wants a personal relationship. And that is what brings her deeper peace. He will not allow her to remain anonymous, nor will he allow himself to remain anonymous. He forces the issue so that when she leaves, she will know that she's not just left a powerful savior, but a personal savior that the one who has healed her is the one who knows her and cares for her. See, it's not just about getting our needs met. When we talk about prayer, coming into relationship with, with God, it's about knowing and being known by God. And it's in the midst of that personal uh, interaction with her that he makes the most important pronouncement, which not only brings her healing, it actually brings her peace. Her healing was a window to a much bigger picture. So when, when the, the issue was healed, it doesn't say that she was saved. It says that she was made well only after she comes into his presence at his invitation and tells him the whole truth. Does he say, daughter, your faith has saved you? Friends, these words are significant. He speaks this word, daughter, it's a word of dignity and relationship. You who were outcast, you who were shunned by the community, I call you daughter. You're now in relationship with me. He dignifies her, restores her. No longer deemed as unclean, she is free and reinstated back into the life of community. And Jesus speaks a further blessing when he says, go in peace. 
speaks of shalom, the equivalent of wholeness and salvation, a word which serves as the the whole background for the New Testament understanding of security and friendship and salvation. It is when she comes into his presence with awe and honesty, that's where she experiences the full healing, and the same is true for us. His healing goes beyond just saving from to saving to. But as we see in the story, the saving of one meant the death of the other. The drama intensifies, and verse 35, everyone is in despair. Don't bother the teacher anymore. The girl is dead. Now, what do we do when it seems that the door has closed? God is delayed? You might be saying up to this point, yeah, I get it. Faith, Jesus Christ, personal relationship, I've known it for years. I've been praying, I believe God is able to do the miraculous, but I don't know what's happening. For the last few years, I feel like I'm just speaking to a ceiling. It seems as if the the door has been shut on me. Why is God delayed? Why has he not, to use a common phrase, come through for me? I think many of us have wrestled with that very question. I know that I have. But notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't rehearse the situation. He doesn't say, oh, you know, here's what would have happened, you know, if I wasn't interrupted. There's only one thing that Jairus can do. Shift the focus on to Jesus. See, even in the midst of fear, we see that. Even in the midst of fear, Jesus is drawing attention to himself. And what is true with Jairus is something that is so important. I know for me, and I think also for you, it's the third thing. Jesus strengthens even the smallest faith. See, here's this woman, and in many ways, we see all the similarities between her situation and the situation of this little girl. But what is the difference? Notice all the differences. He is named, she is not. He's a person of standing, she is an outsider. He has security, she has nothing. He came with confidence, even willing to run up to Jesus. She comes in the shadows. He is a man of means, he's a man of a great household. She has lost all of her money, and yet her faith is held up as an example in this story. And yet when it comes to Jairus, his faith needs some some propping up. Yet here's the lesson, and I think it's the lesson of, of the whole passage. Yet both can experience the strength of Jesus. Why? Because what makes faith strong is where it is directed. That's what makes faith strong. The strength of faith rests on the object of faith. See, from now on, faith is not something that Jairus has, that he carries. Faith is now something that is gonna carry Jairus. And as it's been said many times before, it's not the quantity of our faith, It's the object of our faith that brings us hope, that brings us strength, that brings us power. It's God himself. And just as he drew the woman into a trusting relationship, he does so with Jairus, whose faith is faltering. At this point, he thought, I had enough faith to get Jesus to my house a few hours ago. I don't have any more faith to go farther. And how many times have I been there? I had enough faith for God to do something great for like 10 seconds. Like God... I'm giving you a window of opportunity in which you can do something great. But then the next day comes. Right? Well, God didn't show up. This is, this is too far beyond God. Apparently, he can't do anything anymore. And yet in verse 36, what does he say? Trust me. Trust me. The smallest faith 
that is directed towards Jesus Christ will engage his power for his purposes. The key issue is not the quantity of faith, but the object of faith. Here's why I think that's important. Many of us talk about men and women that we know who are men and women of great faith. Many of you could maybe recall right now in this moment, like, oh, yes, I know this woman. She's amazing, like faith that can move mountains. Like she does all this this great stuff. I know this man. He is a man of great faith. And typically, if you're like me, those people are people who have it all together. Of course that's a man or woman of great faith. Like, look at them. Like, they've just got everything together. They know how to pray perfectly. Their prayers are, like, perfectly eloquent. There's never any bad grammar in there, you know, unlike my, you know, prayers. And we all know that God, you know, honors good grammar. He's like, uh, you know. Uh, Sorry, the Bible doesn't actually say that at all. But we just have this idea that people of great faith are these people that just have it all together. They're, They're naturally courageous. They have half the Bible memorized, maybe even three quarters. I don't know. Those are typically the people we think of when we think of people with great faith. And then we look at ourselves. And my faith is lame. I look at myself and I think, I have no faith. Somebody said recently, like, oh, you and your family, such an amazing family of faith that you moved, you know, moved house, you know, you uprooted everything and moved to a different country. I'm like, are you kidding me? We're like terrified. Like, Like, what's going to happen? Where are we going to live? Where are we going to, our visa's going to get approved? Oh, which they did a few months ago. Praise God. (laughs) We had, I felt like we had no faith. I look at my faith. Maybe you look at your faith and you just feel like, are you kidding me? And maybe right now you're enduring some kind of great pain or a very difficult season in life. And you're just thinking like, man, I just have no faith. But I would say this, the faith that is commended here is not the faith of the bold, it's the faith of the broken. The one being held up as an example for us is the woman who, she's got nothing. And here's Jairus, he's got everything and yet he's the one faltering. I mean, he runs the local synagogue. If there was ever a man of great faith, it would be him. And yet the one that is held up as an example is this woman, not the one who has it all together but the one who has none of it together. Why? Because faith ultimately rests on the object, and that is Jesus himself. And I'm reminded of uh, Hudson Taylor, if any of you have known or read his story, a great um, missionary to to the Chinese people. And on one trip back um, to Britain, he was doing a, a big lecture, a big talk to raise some support and funding for the missionary work that he was doing. And he was introduced as a man of great faith, but his famous response is, I am not a man of great faith. I have faith in a great God. And that is the truth for us all. It's not about us being like, oh, I'm a man or woman of great faith. It's, I know God and he's great. And that is what I need. It rests on Jesus. And so what does he do? We must see this because faith will be tested in the midst of fear. This is true of following Jesus. The testing of faith will always take us farther than we expected. But the result will be greater than we imagined. It will always take us farther than we were willing to go. See, Jairus thought he needed to trust long enough just to get Jesus to the house. But after this, in that moment when he feels like he's given up, Jesus says, trust me. And yet the outcome was far greater. The woman simply wanted relief. Jesus gave her relationship. 
Jairus was looking for some sort of reprieve, but Jesus was about to bring resurrection. Yet in the moment, they didn't know. Verse 37 through 40, they're there and they are weeping. They're just weeping. And I love how real and raw that picture is in a world where death and suffering is so very much sanitized and we've just got to you know, have the, the stiff upper lip and just deal with it. Here we have the season of real desperation. And yet Jesus says this statement, she is not dead, she is sleeping. Now you could understand why you might join in with the scoffers, like is this man crazy? But I want you to note, this is not a medical judgment of Jesus. It's his way of saying, death will not have the last word. And he will raise her from the dead. But I want you to notice how. He says these words. He sits down. Here's the one who has the power to raise from the grave, but notice how he does it. He sits down. He takes this little girl's hand. Talitha dear little girl, get up. It's astounding because it shows us the last point that Jesus, when he acts, it's with power and love. And that's the key. He has great power to raise the dead, but when he does so, he demonstrates his love. Here's Jesus facing death. He's facing the last enemy, humanity's greatest fear, He's powerful enough to defeat death and yet tender and loving to take our hand and to speak to our heart. Because what is true of of this, this girl is actually true for every one of us. If our lives are in the hands of Jesus, then even death is but sleep. I wasn't a Christian in my younger years, but I became a Christian around the time I was 20 years old. And my dad had suffered most of his, his life ever since I was young. My dad just had, it was like every physical thing that could have gone wrong with him went wrong with him. Eventually died of liver failure, cancer, a number of other issues. And as a new Christian, I was just sensing the call of God to go into ministry. And my first funeral was my father's. And I remember standing up there and many of my friends were they were in the audience, my, my friends who were not Christians, my friends that I'd hung out with many years before. And as I'm standing there in my moment, my mind went back to a time years before when me and my friends lost one of our friends. It was a tragic situation. A guy fell out of a 10-story building in San Francisco, taken too many drugs, became reckless. And we had a memorial service for him. And I remember the circle of my friends going around that night sharing what they thought about death and what they, sh- what they thought about where our friend Shane was. Some said he's in a better place, as you often hear. One, I believe, said he's become a star in the universe. And I remember thinking, being totally honest, we have no idea what we're talking about. I looked around, I didn't say it out loud, I didn't have the courage to say it, but we don't know what we're talking about. Fast forward, I'm a new Christian, my father's memorial, here's my my old friends, and I read from the text of the raising of, of Lazarus, and I thought, years ago I didn't have something to say, but now I have something to say, because Jesus Christ is the life and the resurrection. And the tr- truth for every one of us is no matter what death 
you go through, even ultimately your physical death, Jesus will one day say to you, dear daughter, dear son, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. And because Jesus has defeated our greatest enemy, we can know that he will be with us through all of our lesser fears, through all of the things that that threaten to, to torment us and to rob us of our joy. He is with us. Will his timetable work out according to our, our according to ours? Probably not. As much as it infuriates me that Jesus just doesn't stick to like God, I had the PDF. I sent it to you in my prayers. Here it was. But you know what I've learned? I've learned to give God my plans in pencil. <laughs> like, okay, here's the, you know, you can erase it. Like, here are my plans. You are God and I am not. But I take comfort in this story because the raising of this girl points forward to a time when God will one day loose the grip that death has on us all. Death is the last enemy. But because of Jesus Christ, it will not have the last word. And how can we know that this is true for us? Because what he did for these women is a foreshadow of what he would do for us all on the cross. Because on the cross, when Jesus died for our sin, he lost power so that we could have incredible strength and hope. But the only way for us to have that, the only way for us to have that hope, that promise of resurrection was for him to go through the death of judgment that our sin deserves on our behalf so that we could know that one day he will say to us rise, so that we could know that whatever suffering, whatever issues that we face, they will not have the last word. And it is his power and his love demonstrated on the cross and through the resurrection that we can know that he'll bring us through our darkest fears with the greatest hope. And we must remember that it is unlike this woman's medical payments where it cost her everything. She didn't get better, she got worse. Our ultimate healing comes to us for free, but it cost Jesus everything. He laid down his life for you and I so that we could have this hope. It cost him everything, cost us nothing but we can have this hope. We may not know why God is delaying. We may not know why, you know, I've I've read these books. I have these conversations where people think like, I finally figured it out. Like I've, you know, I've got the God hack. You know, I've like figured out like the, you know, the, the secret to God's timing. To be honest, I just don't know. But more and more, I'm just settled knowing, God, you're God, I'm not. You have infinitely more knowledge available to you than I. Far be it from me to take such an attitude of superiority and give you a lecture on how you should do things. My best friend who lost his, his daughter, he told a story of the, the night when they finally got that piece of news that this was probably it and that she was probably gonna die and she was gonna go to be with Jesus. As you can imagine, as a parent, it was just the worst things that, that you could go through. And they wrestled with God in full honesty. I was with him on many nights, just weeping and crying out and shouting and, you know, all the things that, you know, aren't typically polite, but they're real when you're going through this. But he came to a point that was so powerful for me and stuck with me ever since. He said in the midst of of that room when he got the news that he and his wife, they prayed and they simply said this, 
God, we don't know why this is happening. But whatever happens to her, this changes nothing between us. It's childlike faith. Can we get to that place where we say, God, whatever happens with what I'm going through, this changes nothing between us. You're God, I'm not. And you've demonstrated your love for me by laying down your life on the cross. I don't understand. I wrestle with it, but I trust you. We may not know why God is delaying, but we can know that he is loving. And 1 John 4.18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Notice that? We don't have to fear punishment. The ultimate thing, the ultimate death we would fear is separation from God. Jesus dealt with that on the cross. So yes, we will face struggles, but we can know that he loves us, that we are approved by God, and it is this love that casts out all fear. He's taken our punishment for us. And when we look to the cross, we can see and know that God wants to forgive and restore broken people like he does in this chapter. So knowing that you are loved, let him take you by the hand. Let him walk with you. And when you do, be honest with him like this woman. She told him the whole truth. And allow his power to work. And pray all of your fears. Whatever you're fearing today, just pray them all. For in praying our fears, we're expressing our faith. That's why Peter, who was in that room on that day, he wrote in his letter in the fifth chapter, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Peter was there. He knew it. He knew it well. May we know it well.